Chapter Ten of Sovereignty of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jen Raimundo. Sovereignty of God by Arthur Pink. Chapter Ten: Our Attitude Toward His Sovereignty. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in Thy sight. Matthew chapter eleven verse twenty six. In the present chapter we shall consider, somewhat briefly, the practical application to ourselves of the great truth which we have pondered in its various ramifications in earlier pages. In chapter 12 we shall deal more in detail with the value of this doctrine, but here we would confine ourselves to a definition of what ought to be our attitude toward the sovereignty of God. Every truth that is revealed to us in God's word is there not only for our information, but also for our inspiration. The Bible has been given to us not to gratify an idle curiosity, but to edify the souls of its readers. The sovereignty of God is something more than an abstract principle which explains the rationale of the divine government. It is designed as a motive for godly fear. It is made known to us for the promotion of righteous living. It is revealed in order to bring into subjection our rebellious hearts. A true recognition of God's sovereignty humbles as nothing else does or can humble, and brings the heart into lowly submission before God, causing us to relinquish our own self-will and making us delight in the perception and performance of the divine will. When we speak of the sovereignty of God, we mean very much more than the exercise of God's governmental power, though of course that is included in the expression. As we have remarked in an earlier chapter, the sovereignty of God means the Godhood of God, in its fullest and deepest meaning, the title of this book signifies the character and being of the one whose pleasure is performed and whose will is executed. To truly recognize the sovereignty of God is, therefore, to gaze upon the sovereign himself. It is to come into the presence of the august majesty on high. It is to have a sight of the thrice holy God in his excellent glory. The effects of such a sight may be learned from those scriptures which describe the experience of different ones who obtained a view of the Lord God. Mark the experience of Job, the one of whom the Lord himself said, There is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. Job chapter 1 verse 8. At the close of the book which bears his name, we are shown Job in the divine presence, and how does he carry himself when brought face to face with Jehovah? Hear what he says. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee, wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job chapter 42 verses 5 and 6. Thus, a sight of God, God revealed in awesome majesty, caused Job to abhor himself, and not only so, but to abase himself before the Almighty. Take note of Isaiah. In the sixth chapter of his prophecy, a scene is brought before us which has few equals even in Scripture. The prophet beholds the Lord upon the throne, a throne high and lifted up. Above this throne stood the seraphims with veiled faces, crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. What is the effect of this sight upon the prophet? We read, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5. A sight of the divine king humbled Isaiah into the dust, bringing him, as it did, to a realization of his own nothingness. One more. Look at the prophet of Daniel. Toward the close of his life, this man of God beheld the Lord in theophanic manifestation. He appeared to his servant in human form, clothed in linen, and with loins girded with fine gold, symbolic of holiness and divine glory. 
we read that his body also was like the barrel and his face as the appearance of lightning and his eyes as lamps of fire and his arms and his feet like in colour to polished brass and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude daniel then tells the effect this vision had upon him and those who were with him and i daniel alone saw the vision for the men that were with me saw not the vision but a great quaking fell upon them so that they fled to hide themselves therefore i was left alone and saw this great vision and there remained no strength in me for my comeliness was turned in me into corruption and i retained no strength yet heard i the voice of his words and when i heard the voice of his words then was i in a deep sleep on my face and my face toward the ground daniel chapter ten verses six through nine once more then we are shown that to obtain a sight of the sovereign god is for creature strength to wither up and results in man being humbled into the dust before his maker what then ought to be our attitude toward the supreme sovereign we reply one one of godly fear why is it that to-day the masses are so utterly unconcerned about spiritual and eternal things and that they are lovers of pleasure more than lovers of god why is it that even on the battlefields multitudes were so indifferent to their soul's welfare? Why is it that defiance of heaven is becoming more open, more blatant, more daring? The answer is, because there is no fear of God before their eyes. Romans chapter 3 verse 18. Again, why is it that the authority of the scriptures has been lowered so sadly of late? Why is it that even among those who profess to be the Lord's people there is so little real subjection to his word, and that its precepts are so lightly esteemed and so readily set aside? Ah, what needs to be stressed today is that God is a God to be feared. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 Happy the soul that has been awed by a view of God's majesty, that has had a vision of God's awful greatness, his ineffable holiness, his perfect righteousness, his irresistible power, his sovereign grace. Does someone say, but it is only the unsaved, those outside of Christ, who need to fear God? Then the sufficient answer is that the saved, those who are in Christ, are admonished to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling time was when it was the general custom to speak of a believer as a god-fearing man that such an appellation has become nearly extinct only serves to show whither we have drifted nevertheless it still stands written like as a father pitieth his children so the lord pitieth them that fear him psalm one hundred and three verse thirteen when we speak of godly fear of course we do not mean a servile fear such as prevails among the heathen in connection with their gods no we mean that spirit which jehovah is pledged to bless that spirit to which the prophet referred when he said to this man will i the lord look even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my word isaiah chapter sixty six verse two it was this the apostle had in view when he wrote honour all men love the brotherhood fear god honour the king first peter chapter two verse seventeen and nothing will foster this godly fear like a recognition of the sovereign majesty of god what ought to be our attitude toward the sovereignty of god we answer again two one of implicit obedience a sight of god leads to realization of our littleness and nothingness and issues in a sense of dependency and of casting ourselves upon god or again a view of the divine majesty promotes the spirit of godly fear and this in turn begets an obedient walk here, then, is the divine antidote for the native evil of our hearts. Naturally, man is filled with a sense of his own importance, with his greatness and self-sufficiency, in a word, with pride and rebellion. 
but as we remarked the great corrective is to behold the mighty god for this alone will really humble him man will glory either in himself or in god man will live either to serve and please himself or he will seek to serve and please the lord none can serve two masters irreverence begets disobedience said the haughty monarch of egypt who is the lord that i should obey his voice to let israel go i know not the lord neither will i let israel go exodus chapter five verse two to pharaoh the god of the hebrews was merely a god one among many a powerless entity who needed not to be feared or served how sadly mistaken he was and how bitterly he had to pay for his mistake he soon discovered but what we are here seeking to emphasize is that pharaoh's defiant spirit was the fruit of irreverence and this irreverence was the consequence of his ignorance of the majesty and authority of the divine being now if irreverence begets disobedience true reverence will produce and promote obedience to realize that the holy scriptures are a revelation from the most high communicating to us his mind and defining for us his will is the first step toward practical godliness to recognize that the bible is god's word and that its precepts are the precepts of the almighty will lead us to see what an awful thing it is to despise and ignore them to receive the bible as addressed to our own souls given to us by the creator himself will cause us to cry with the psalmist incline my heart into thy testimonies order my steps in thy word psalm 119 verse 36 and verse 133 once the sovereignty of the author of the word is apprehended it will not longer be a matter of picking and choosing from the precepts and statutes of that word selecting those which meet with our approval but it will be seen that nothing less than an unqualified and wholehearted submission becomes the creature what ought to be our attitude toward the sovereignty of god three one of entire resignation a true recognition of god's sovereignty will exclude all murmuring this is self-evident, yet the thought deserves to be dwelt upon. It is natural to murmur against afflictions and losses. It is natural to complain when we are deprived of those things upon which we had set our hearts. We are apt to regard our possessions as ours unconditionally. We feel that when we have prosecuted our plans with prudence and diligence, that we are entitled to success, that when by dint of hard work we have accumulated a competence, we deserve to keep and enjoy it, that when we are surrounded by a happy family no power may lawfully enter the charmed circle and strike down a loved one and if in any of these cases disappointment bankruptcy death actually comes the perverted instinct of the human heart is to cry out against god but in the one who by grace has recognized god's sovereignty such murmuring is silenced and instead there is a bowing to the divine will and an acknowledgment that he has not afflicted us as sorely as we deserve a true recognition of God's sovereignty will avow God's perfect right to do with us as he wills. The one who bows to the pleasure of the Almighty will acknowledge his absolute right to do with us as seemeth him good. If he chooses to send poverty, sickness, domestic bereavements, even while the heart is bleeding at every pore, it will say, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Often there will be a struggle, for the carnal mind remains in the believer to the end of his earthly pilgrimage. But though there may be a conflict within his breast, nevertheless, to the one who has really yielded himself to this blessed truth, there will presently be heard that voice saying, as of old it said to the turbulent Gennesareth, Peace be still, and the tempestuous flood within will be quieted, and the subdued soul will lift a tearful but confident eye to heaven and say, Thy will be done. 
a striking illustration of a soul bowing to the sovereign will of god is furnished by the history of eli the high priest of israel in first samuel chapter three we learn how god revealed to the young child samuel that he was about to slay eli's two sons for their wickedness and on the morrow samuel communicates this message to the aged priest it is difficult to conceive of more appalling intelligence for the heart of a pious parent the announcement that his child is going to be stricken down by sudden death is under any circumstances a great trial to any father but to learn that his two sons in the prime of their manhood and utterly unprepared to die were to be cut off by a divine judgment must have been overwhelming yet what was the effect upon eli when he learned from samuel the tragic chidings what reply did he make when he heard the awful news and he said it is the lord let him do what seemeth him good first samuel chapter three verse eighteen and not another word escaped him wonderful submission sublime resignation lovely exemplification of the power of divine grace to control the strongest affections of the human heart and subdue the rebellious will bringing it into unrepining acquiescence to the sovereign pleasure of jehovah another example equally striking is seen in the life of job as is well known job was one that feared god and eschewed evil if ever there was one who might reasonably expect divine providence to smile upon him we speak as a man it was job yet how fared it with him for a time the lines fell unto him in pleasant places the lord filled his quiver by giving him seven sons and three daughters he prospered him in his temporal affairs until he owned great possessions but of a sudden the sun of life was hidden behind dark clouds in a single day job lost not only his flocks and herds but his sons and daughters as well news arrived that his cattle had been carried off by robbers and his children slain by a cyclone and how did he receive this intelligence hearken to his sublime words the lord gave and the lord hath taken away he bowed to the sovereign will of jehovah he traced his afflictions back to their first cause he looked behind the sabians who had stolen his cattle and beyond the winds that had destroyed his children and saw the hand of god but not only did job recognize god's sovereignty he rejoiced in it too to the words the lord gave and the lord hath taken away he added blessed be the name of the lord job chapter one verse twenty one again we say sweet submission sublime resignation a true recognition of god's sovereignty causes us to hold our every plan in abeyance to god's will the writer well recalls an incident which occurred in england over twenty years ago queen victoria was dead and the date for the coronation of her eldest son edward had been set for april nineteen o two in all the announcements which were sent out two little letters were omitted d v deo volente god willing plans were made and all arrangements completed for the most imposing celebrations that england had ever witnessed kings and emperors from all parts of the earth had received invitations to attend the royal ceremony the prince's proclamations were printed and displayed but so far as the writer is aware the letters d v were not found on a single one of them a most imposing program had been arranged and the late queen's eldest son was to be crowned edward the seventh at westminster abbey at a certain hour on a fixed day and then god intervened and all man's plans were frustrated a still small voice was heard to say you have reckoned without me and prince edward was stricken down with appendicitis and his coronation postponed for months as remarked a true recognition of god's sovereignty causes us to hold our plan in abeyance to god's will 
it makes us recognize that the divine potter has absolute power over the clay and molds it according to his own imperial pleasure it causes us to heed that admonition now alas so generally disregarded go to now ye that say to-day or to-morrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow for what is your life it is even a vapour that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away for that he ought to say if the lord will we shall live and do this or that james chapter four verses thirteen through fifteen yes it is to the lord's will we must bow it is for him to say where i shall live whether in america or africa it is for him to determine under what circumstances i shall live whether amid wealth or poverty whether in health or sickness it is for him to say how long i shall live whether i shall be cut down in youth like the flower of the field or whether i shall continue for threescore and ten years to really learn this lesson is by grace to attain into a high form in the school of god and even when we think we have learned it we discover again and again that we have to relearn it what ought to be our attitude toward the sovereignty of god four one of deep thankfulness and joy the heart's apprehension of this most blessed truth of the sovereignty of god produces something far different than a sullen bowing to the inevitable the philosophy of this perishing world knows nothing better than to make the best of a bad job but with the christian it should be far otherwise not only should the recognition of god's supremacy beget within us godly fear implicit obedience and entire resignation but it should cause us to say with the psalmist bless the lord o my soul and all that is within me bless his holy name does not the apostle say giving thanks always for all things unto god and the father in the name of our lord jesus christ ephesians chapter five verse twenty ah it is at this point the state of our souls is so often put to the test alas there is so much self-will in each of us when things go as we wish them we appear to be very grateful to god but what are those occasions when things go contrary to our plans and desires we take it for granted when the real christian takes a train journey that upon reaching his destination he devoutly returns thanks unto god which of course argues that he controls everything otherwise we ought to thank the engine driver the stoker the signalman etc or if in business at the close of a good week gratitude is expressed unto the giver of every good temporal and every perfect spiritual gift which again argues that he directs all customers to your shop so far so good such examples occasion no difficulty but imagine the opposites suppose my train was delayed for hours did i fret and fume suppose another train ran into it and i am injured or suppose i have had a poor week in business or that lightning struck my shop and set it on fire or that burglars broke in and rifled it then what do i see the hand of god in these things take the case of job once more when loss after loss came his way what did he do bemoan his bad luck curse the robbers murmur against god no he bowed before him in worship ah dear reader there is no real rest for your poor heart until you learn to see the hand of god in everything but for that faith must be in constant exercise and what is faith a blind credulity a fatalistic acquiescence no far from it faith is a resting on the sure word of the living god and therefore says we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Romans chapter 8 verse 28. And therefore faith will give thanks always for all things. Operative faith will rejoice in the Lord always. Philippians chapter 4 verse 4. 
we turn now to mark how this recognition of god's sovereignty which is expressed in godly fear implicit obedience entire resignation and deep thankfulness and joy was supremely and perfectly exemplified by the lord jesus christ in all things the lord jesus has left us an example that we should follow his steps but is this true in connection with the first point made above are the words godly fear ever linked with his peerless name remembering that godly fear signifies not a servile terror but rather a filial subjection and reverence and remembering too that the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom would it not rather be strange if no mention at all were made of godly fear in connection with the one who was wisdom incarnate what a wonderful and precious word is that of hebrews chapter five or seven who in the days of his flesh having offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and having been heard for his godly fear revised version what was it but godly fear which caused the lord jesus to be subject unto mary and joseph in the days of his childhood was it godly fear a filial subjection to and reverence for god that we see displayed when we read and he came to nazareth where he had been brought up and as his custom was he went into the synagogue on the sabbath day luke chapter four verse sixteen was it not godly fear which caused the incarnate son to say when tempted by satan to fall down and worship him it is written thou shalt worship the lord thy god and him only shalt thou serve was it not godly fear which moved him to say to the cleansed leper go thy way show thyself to the priest and offer the gift that moses commanded matthew chapter eight verse four but why multiple illustrations footnote note how old testament prophecy also declared that the spirit of the lord should rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the lord isaiah chapter eleven verses one and two end of footnote how perfect was the obedience that the lord jesus offered to god the father and in reflecting upon this let us not lose sight of that wondrous grace which caused him who was in the very form of god to stoop so low as to take upon him the form of a servant and thus be brought into the place where obedience was becoming as the perfect servant he yielded complete obedience to his father how absolute and entire that obedience was we may learn from the words he became obedient unto death even the death of the cross philippians chapter two verse eight that this was a conscious and intelligent obedience is clear from his own language therefore doth my father love me because i lay down my life that i might take it again no man taketh it from me but i lay it down of myself i have power to lay it down and i have power to take it again this commandment have i received from my father john chapter ten verses seven and eighteen what shall we say of the absolute resignation of the son to the father's will what but between them there was entire oneness of accord said he for i came down from heaven not to do mine own will but the will of him that sent me john chapter six verse thirty eight and how fully he substantiated that claim all know who have attentively followed his path as marked out in the scriptures behold him in gethsemane the bitter cup held in the father's hand is presented to his view mark well his attitude learn of him who is meek and lowly in heart remember that there in the garden we see the word become flesh a perfect man his body is quivering at every nerve in contemplation of the physical sufferings which await him his holy and sensitive nature is shrinking from the horrible indignities which shall be heaped upon him his heart is breaking at the awful reproach which is before him 
his spirit is greatly troubled as he foresees the terrible conflict with the power of darkness and above all and supremely his soul is filled with horror at the thought of being separated from god himself thus and there he pours out his soul to the father and with strong crying and tears he sheds as it were great drops of blood and now observe and listen still the beating of thy heart and hearken to the words which fall from his blessed lips father if thou be willing remove this cup from me nevertheless not my will but thine be done luke chapter twenty two verse forty two here is submission personified here is resignation to the pleasure of a sovereign god superlatively exemplified and he has left us an example that we should follow his steps he who was god became man and was tempted in all points like as we are sin apart to show us how to wear our creature nature above we asked what shall we say of christ's absolute resignation to the father's will we answer further this that here as everywhere he was unique peerless in all things he has the preeminence in the lord jesus there was no rebellious will to be broken in his heart there was nothing to be subdued was not this one reason why in the language of prophecy he said i am a worm and no man psalm twenty two verse six a worm has no power of resistance it was because in him there was no resistance that he could say my meat is to do the will of him that sent me john chapter four verse thirty four yea it was because he was in perfect accord with the father in all things that he said i delight to do thy will o god yea thy law is within my heart psalm forty verse eight note the last clause here and behold his matchless excellency god has to put his laws into our minds and write them in our hearts see hebrews chapter eight verse ten but his law was already in christ's heart what a beautiful and striking illustration of christ's thankfulness and joy is found in matthew chapter eleven there we behold first the failure of the faith of his forerunner verses twenty two and twenty three next we learn of the discontent of the people satisfied neither with christ's joyous message nor with john's solemn one verses sixteen through twenty third we have the non-repentance of those favored cities in which our lord's mightiest works were done verses twenty one through twenty four and then we read at that time jesus answered and said i thank thee o father lord of heaven and earth because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes verse twenty five note the parallel passage in luke chapter ten verse twenty one opens by saying in that hour jesus rejoiced in spirit and said i thank thee etc ah here was submission in its purest form here was one by whom the worlds were made yet in the days of his humiliation and in the face of his rejection thankfully and joyously bowing to the will of the lord of heaven and earth what ought to be our attitude towards god's sovereignty finally five one of adoring worship it has been well said that true worship is based upon recognized greatness and greatness is superlatively seen in sovereignty and at no other footstool will men really worship j b moody in the presence of the divine king upon his throne even the seraphims veil their faces divine sovereignty is not the sovereignty of a tyrannical despot but the exercised pleasure of one who is infinitely wise and good because god is infinitely wise he cannot err and because he is infinitely righteous he will not do wrong here then is the preciousness of this truth 
The mere fact itself that God's will is irresistible and irreversible fills me with fear, but once I realize that God wills only that which is good, my heart is made to rejoice. Here, then, is the final answer to the question of this chapter. What ought to be our attitude toward the sovereignty of God? The becoming attitude for us to take is that of godly fear, implicit obedience, and unreserved resignation and submission. But not only so. The recognition of the sovereignty of God and the realization that the sovereign himself is my father ought to overwhelm the heart and cause me to bow before him in adoring worship. At all times I must say, Even so, Father, for so it seemeth good in thy sight. We conclude with an example which well illustrates our meaning. Some two hundred years ago the saintly Madame Guyon, after ten years spent in a dungeon lying far below the surface of the ground, lit only by a candle at mealtimes, wrote these words. A little bird I am, shut from the fields of air, yet in my cage I sit and sing to him who placed me there. Well pleased a prisoner to be, because, my God, it pleases thee. Not have I else to do, I sing the whole day long, and he who most I love to please doth listen to my song. He caught and bound my wandering wing, but still he bends to hear me sing. My cage confines me round, abroad I cannot fly, but though my wing is closely bound, my heart's at liberty. My prison walls cannot control the flight, the freedom of the soul. Ah, it is good to soar these bolts and bar above to him whose purpose I adore, whose providence I love, and in thy might he will to find the joy, the freedom of the mind. End of chapter ten. Recording by Jen Raimundo.